Welcome to another episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots. I am your host, Nivi Jaswal. Our guest today is a rising star of the plant-based movement who was born vegan. Yes, you heard it right. She has never, at least knowingly, consumed dairy and meat in her entire life. She contends that science isn't as black and white as the media often portrays it. As a former science teacher and vegan educator, she has a passion for nuanced, honest, and holistic conversations exploring the gray areas of science ethics in society. I'm looking forward to chatting with Serena Farb on controversial scientific topics, propaganda masquerading as science, and also learn how our morals and ethics can and should shape science and how it's applied in society. We'll be right back to connect the dots on veganism, education, and all matters of public and planetary health in just a minute. Welcome, Serena. How are you today? Thank you. I'm good. And I'm so glad to be here doing this. Well, thank you. So are we. And um, as I just mentioned to our viewers, you were born vegan. Tell me everything about it. Yeah, yeah, I was. And, um, you know, it really surprises a lot of people to hear that. And one of the most common questions I get asked when people learn that is, well, have I ever wanted to taste animal products? Have I ever wanted to try meat, dairy, or eggs? And my very truthful, honest answer is absolutely no. And, and uh, I've never had any interest in that. And the reason for that, I believe, is because my parents didn't just raise me vegan, but they also taught me what veganism was and why. So it wasn't just this diet. It wasn't just this is our family and our lifestyle and what we do, but they explained it from when I was, you know, three, four years old, when they were feeding me, you know, even and there were way fewer vegan, you know, junk food alternatives in the 90s, but there still were vegan ice creams and, and some fake meats out there. And when they'd feed me, you know, like a veggie hot dog or something, or we'd be at a party with other people, they always made sure to call it like a veggie hot dog. And they'd say, why don't we eat real hot dogs? You know, and they would distinguish that even though these items might look somewhat similar, that they were very different things. And that one was made of animals and one was made of plants. And we didn't eat things made with animals because we love animals. And, and of course, they used age-appropriate language to talk to me about this, and it changed as I got older. But when I was really little, the basics were, we love animals, we don't eat them. And, um, and that just made perfect sense to me. It was like, duh, of course I don't want to hurt animals. We had, you know, cats and dogs. We had some turkeys when I was younger, rescued, that lived with us. And so I had a lot of opportunities as well to interact with real living animals and of course I loved them and wouldn't want to see them hurt or injured. And it just, it made perfect sense to my young brain. But one of the, the more difficult pieces of this, so it wasn't that I ever felt left out or that I you know wanted to eat what other people were eating. I didn't, I really <laughs> didn't, um, don't to this day. But the hard part was because I knew this information, when I saw friends or peers eating animals, I couldn't understand why. That was the most difficult thing. It was, well, of course, like, don't they love animals too? Like, why would they want to hurt animals? Yeah. And, you know, and it, that, that, was, that was what was difficult for me, especially because my parents also taught me how to read labels when I was, you know, six or seven and learning to read. We had these, these uh, flashcards and one side would have an ingredient like gelatin and the other side would have a description of what it was and how it was made. Wow. And they gave me all of these. Yeah, you have a question? Yes. So well, I have so many questions. Okay. So, so um, did your parents make these flashcards or back in the, oh, they did? Yes. Yes. My mom made them. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me everything. I'm busy taking notes and I'm, I'm pretty sure parents are watching this right now. Okay. Well, I, I actually have a copy of the note cards that my mom helped me remake recently that you can like purchase and download on my website. Um, awesome. Okay. 
there's 40 of them with like a bunch of common ingredients. And I think it was great. It helped me so much because my parents did this when I was like six or seven with the idea that then when I was out in the world, they wouldn't control what I ate or chose to do because they had empowered me to sort of make my own food choices. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so I'm just so excited about this because it's, it's amazing. You know, it's one thing to connect the dots on theory, you know, like in a book or in, in on paper or on a podcast. Um, but it's entirely different to actually connect the dots with a child and then to keep doing that in real time and and raise them with this ethic yeah mm -hmm. and, and you were on the receiving end of it you were the recipient yeah very mindfully very thoughtfully not just creating um vocabulary that was very different from mainstream but also walking their talk in terms of getting you access um to rescue animals and and seeing that you know when mom and dad say this they actually you know do this too so we're sort of living that ethic you yeah. you mentioned about this conflict that you experienced when others and especially your friends who you know claimed that they loved animals just as much but they weren't walking their talk tell me a little bit more about that yeah. So that was, that was the hard part for me. I, you know, I could eat vegan alternatives. I didn't feel left out. My parents did their best to provide those. And then, but friends would ask me, you know, oh, why, why can't you have this candy? And because I use these note cards and learn these ingredients, I would say, I can, I choose not to. That was, that was really the, the, you know, learning the ingredients, being able to read labels for myself helped me feel really empowered in my choices. And so I, I would tell kids, you know, like, well, I choose not to. Like, if don't you know what gelatin's made of? Let me explain it to you. Wow. And yeah, and that was, that was um, in some ways, that was very difficult because in my head, and, and this was also kind of the way my parents framed it, which makes sense for a young child, you know, they explained it as not everyone knows the information we know, which is a piece of the truth. Obviously, there's other reasons people don't change. Um, but that was kind of what I thought. And so in my head, well, my friends just didn't know. So if they knew the information I knew, then they would also want to go vegan or not want to eat animal products. Yeah. And it surprised me, you know, every time when someone would be eating candy, they'd ask why I couldn't have it. I'd be like, oh, I read the label. There's gelatin in it. What's gelatin? And then I would describe in graphic detail to them how gelatin was made. And I remember, you know, I was like seven around this time and you know, a, a kid in gymnastics I was, you know, with would be like, oh, whatever, and like pop the candy in their mouth. Hmm. I was just stunned. I was like, how can you, like, I just told you, isn't that gross? And doesn't that disgust you? And like, why would you want to eat that? Hmm. And it was very difficult for me to comprehend that. Um, and I just, I really struggled with that. Yeah, I, I can absolutely understand. Um, um, because even as adults, and especially as adults who are choosing a, you know, a whole food plant-based or a vegan diet for, you know, several reasons, they find it very difficult to execute upon that approach and navigate society, you know, because there's, as you rightly pointed out, people don't have the information. So one is sheer, pure ignorance. And then there's, even if you have the information, the, the blinders are on and embedded so deeply um, that we, you know, a lot of people just don't give, you know, a, you know, a flying F, you know, uh -huh. it's not going to be happy with me swearing on her show, but, you know, so, um, so this is when you spoke to adults. Were were there uh, so when you spoke to children? When were there any adults who approached you and, and said, "Serena, tell us more about this," or "Why aren't you eating this?" Like maybe you found yourself at a birthday party and an adult was serving something, um, or did your parents take care of that? Um, or so. So yeah. yeah. Um, it depended. My parents definitely did their best to create supportive environments. You know take, you know, trying to create um, 
groups with our, you know, within our community that had vegan potlucks and were supportive. I did have a number of other friends that were vegetarian, most, you know, not many other vegans, but definitely vegetarians. Um, they'd take me to conferences like Vegan Summerfest every summer, which was the one place where I knew I could eat whatever I wanted. Like I didn't have to ask questions. I knew it was all vegan. I met other kids there. If they handed me a snack, you know, I was okay with that. And it was, that was so helpful. Honestly, it was so amazing to have that, you know, one or two places in my life where I was kind of where vegan became normal for a week or a little bit, but that wasn't most of my life. And even though my parents did their best to create that supportive community, um, and, and I think they did better than many people do, they still, you know, that's, I still was around lots of families and adults that weren't vegan. Most of the adults in my life were fairly supportive that I would actually spend time with the parents and my friends, et cetera. But um, in school is when I, I had a few issues in, in sixth grade, I had a teacher um, and this was like a private Montessori school. So supposed to be like peace education, more alternative, you know, open to these kinds of things. And a lot of the school was, and I happened to be in the classroom with a particular teacher that was very, very blocked on veganism. And we had lots and lots of struggles. Um, she kind of tried to ban me from talking about veganism in the classroom at one point. Seriously, tell me about that. Like, how did that conversation go? How did she communicate to a child um, that they weren't supposed to talk about some things that they were obviously, you know, very passionate about? Yeah, well, it came about because I was bringing my lunch to school every day and then kids were asking me about, you know, oh, my tofu sandwich or my veggie sushi roll, like things that were weird to them. And, um, and, and then a lot of them did start asking questions about why I didn't eat animals. And of course, I answered them. And then I also decided I wanted to show them. So I would bring graphic flyers like why vegans or even if you like meat to school, and, and I don't necessarily recommend these activism tactics today, but I would literally, like they'd be eating a hamburger across the table from me, and I would open up this flyer in their face and be like, did you know this is what a hamburger's made from? Like, here's a dead cow, or you're eating a hot dog, here's a pig being skinned. Um, and a lot of, uh, like I joke that half of the class went vegetarian and half of the class hated me. <laughs> um, it was- So the activism did work. A lot of kids were definitely very moved and open and wanted to sort of change what they were doing. Um, so, yeah, so it was it was very interesting to see I mean, that. <laughs> give me some hope. So, so uh, share with us some few, you know, inc incidents where you shared it with your classmates and, and they were moved and inspired. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little fuzzy now. There were so much that happened. But yeah, I remember like one friend in particular, she stopped eating hot dogs and then said she was going vegetarian because she also loved animals, and didn't want to hurt them. Um, and that was a pretty direct result of the information I shared. I don't think she ever went vegan. But you know, at that age, when you're talking to 11 or 12 year olds, I think that's incredibly positive, because it shows a mental shift, it shows that they're caring and wanting to change what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and another girl went vegetarian, but then when I went so far as to try and get the, the class fishing trip stopped, then I remember she got very upset and was like, I'm not going to be vegetarian anymore because you won't let us go fishing. And I was like, 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 like I'm not the one who cares. This is like, like, you shouldn't be doing this for me. Like, this is, you know, about the animals. And, um, and so I was very confused by that. Like, why was she coming to tell me like, because of you, I'm not going to be vegetarian. So she went vegetarian because of me and then went back because I got our fishing trip stopped or something. And she was upset about that. Mm -hmm. um, but then it was all of these interactions that led the teacher to basically say, like, I'm getting complaints from some kids. I, and I don't really know if kids or teacher or, or parents were complaining. Mm -hmm. She just really, I think, was very uncomfortable herself by the information I was sharing. Of course, you triggered a lot of cognitive <laughs> dissonance in this, you know, obviously an adult who um, couldn't wrap their hands around the science that mm -hmm. you were very willing to share and the truth that you were very willing to share and you were armed with, you know, by your very mindful parents. So it's it's really interesting because it's 
what I really want to understand and talk more about is, you know, how we say in education, um, we want our children to have critical thinking. We want them to have information. We want them to um, be logical and connect the dots and, and be able to articulate things. And it sounds as though you were not just living your vegan ethic from a point of view of compassion, but you were also bringing a lot of information along with it. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, thanks to your parents, they gamified uh, it for you and, and facilitated that joy of learning. Um, and you mentioned that you were passing it on um, in your social relationships, even as a young person. And, and you experienced a lot of pushback, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that you would do activism in school, like on campus and, and so on. Um, what was the ultimate consequence of this teacher trying to ban your expression? You know, it was very frustrating. And I'm very grateful that, you know, my parents were advocates for me and stepped in. But the biggest thing was that I felt, you know, not heard and not listened to because another one of the issues I had with this teacher is the way a Montessori classroom works is chores rotate and students are sort of responsible for doing everything from washing the dishes after lunch and cleaning up to, you know, other things. And so, you know, every three weeks, it would be my turn to wash the dishes after the students had eaten, you know, meat or whatever the school was serving. And I approached her basically saying like, I feel uncomfortable doing this. Like I don't eat meat. I don't want to touch and have my hands in, you know, animal products or dead flesh. Um, you know, can I have a different job? And she viewed it as I was just trying to get out of chores and, you know, was like, no, you have to do this. You have no option. Um, and, you know, didn't listen until my parents showed up and were like, you know, think about this as if we were, you know, and we are Jewish, but they were like, you know, if we were observant kosher Jews, like, you know, you would never. And my teacher was like, oh, of course, you know, Serena doesn't have to do it. It was, to it was like, she did the opposite of what you're supposed to do in Montessori, which is treat children as individuals and listen to them. And she didn't take me seriously at all until my parents stepped in. So like watching, you know, that was very frustrating to feel like I said the same thing. Why couldn't you listen to me? Um, you know, I actually mean this. I'm not just trying to get out of chores. And, and I remember, you know, talking to her when she tried to ban me from talking about veganism. Like I said, well, kids are asking me questions. How, what do you mean? You know, how can you keep me from answering someone's questions? So I basically just ignored <laughs> what she said. Yeah. But it was it was frustrating. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. Oh, my goodness. You know, that would have been quite a spot to be in. And especially as a young child, when you're, you know, you're, we were told we're supposed to look up to our elders and especially teachers have unknowingly and knowingly, they have a lot of authority on how our minds are shaped, you know, mm -hmm. so then in school, if, if, you know, unless somebody's homeschooled, we end up spending a majority of our life, our childhood in school with those adults than with our parents, you know, and, and that's how it is. Um, it's, it's really interesting, you know, how you've, you've had to navigate this very carnist atmosphere, you know, as, as a child, as a child. And, and I was thinking about um, how the, the way some of these adults, you know, in education um, have reacted and responded, um, try to stifle your expression and so on. Did, did that, how did that inspire your career as an educator? Yeah, I mean, it always gave me ideas of how I would do things differently, you know, like, um, and, and I don't think I actually thought about it that much as a kid. I didn't know or think I wanted to be um, a teacher, or, you know, or anything like that. But I've always felt a passion for sharing information. And I think it always came from this place of other people don't know what I know. And it's just that simple. Once you know this information, how could you not want to change? How could you not want to live a better life, cause less harm? you know, be more sustainable, compassionate. Um, it was just the information to me was so straightforward and so powerful. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share it with everyone everywhere. And I felt like that was, that's always been my calling. It's just, let me share what I know mm -hmm. and, and help others see what I see. Yeah. And it almost sounds like viscerally, emotionally, 
you know um and obviously as a as a young person you were as you mentioned you weren't processing it as logically as well i'm going to be the teacher you know whatever mm -hmm. it sounds as though you you wanted to be the educator you wanted to be the educate the teacher that you wished you had had um when you were growing up mm -hmm. who had the information who also knew how to articulate and express it in a classroom situation and and you and deploy their powers of you know being able to shape young minds so so serena you grew older you were then faced with you know types of academic tracks and streams to choose from and and a career track after that um we've mentioned to our viewers uh you chose to be a science teacher you know so so share with us a little bit about your journey through how you made that choice yeah so I, my journey with activism has been very up and down. As a young child, I felt very compelled to share this information um, through, you know, being like a teenager and I, and then I homeschooled at periods. So had lots of flexibility to travel around with my family, visit museums, do activism. But then, you know, as I got into high school, I got a lot more academic and in particular, and my mom was also, her background was in um, microbiology. She had always loved science and loved sharing science with my sister and I as well. And so one of the things that I did as a homeschooler and through high school was I competed in science fairs. Yeah. So I competed in science fairs for about eight years from when I was in like fourth grade through the end of high school. And that was very, very powerful for me. And in high school, it was kind of, you know, people would ask me like what I did for sports. And I joked that like, I, I did debate and science fair, like those were my sports because they were so time consuming. And for people who maybe don't know, like the science fairs at the high school level are extremely um, intense and competitive. And there are opportunities that most people wouldn't really be aware of. It's not like just a local thing. Hmm. Um, so like I would spend my, like I spent my summer before junior and senior year working in a cell biology lab at the University of Kansas. Uh-huh. Um, you know, for 20, 30 hours a week, depending on the week, and doing like, in some cases, graduate level research as a high school student. And I loved this. I loved being in the lab. I loved getting to work with a professor who was amazing. Like, I literally called up a professor and was like, here's this research I want to do. Like, would you let me do this in your lab? And, um, and I had to call several before finding one who would. But so it was very self-driven, which I felt was, you know, really powerful. And it made me fall in love with science. The very basic, like, I have a question, let me set up design and set up an experiment, collect data, analyze it, and then presenting it. And I, I loved the speaking and presenting part as well. And out of these science fairs, like I, I traveled to the, um, at the time it was the Intel sponsored international science and engineering fair, because you get like all expense paid trips, they're week long competitions. And, yep. and I loved them. I loved the community. I loved the people I met. I loved how inspiring all of these people were. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to go into science research at that point. I, you know, I went to college and thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my PhD in biochemistry and go work at the NIH doing research. That was what I thought my career trajectory was. But both in high school and then in college, I had a number of experiences that kind of shifted that way of thinking. And some of them being where I started to see direct corruption and corporate influences. And the, the biggest one for me was actually when I was at a biotechnology competition in high school. And I had advanced to a certain level the previous year. And the following year, I got held back. And it was very disappointing And one of the judges basically told me the reason he didn't vote for me was, so for a little bit of context, my research was about um, the chemicals, BPA, bisphenol A, and, and BPS, the replacement compound. You know, they're in plastic water bottles, they're in receipts, and they're endocrine disruptors. Hmm. And um, this judge came up to me and basically said afterwards, like, you know, I just wanted you to know, like, why I didn't vote for you, because you spoke really well and this and that. But, um, you know, I disagree with your research. And I was like, what do you mean you disagree with my research? Like there's, you know, it's a 20 page paper, there's citations like, and he was like, well, I work for the paper industry and BPA is totally safe. So I disagree with your premise. And I was like, well, 
uh, like, did you read my citation? Like, like, what, what do you mean you disagree with my premise? Like the research is all there. Like, what did I do wrong? Like, where's the flaw? Yeah. And we're just like, I just, I work in the paper industry. BPA is totally safe. Like all the activists are wrong. Yeah, well, it's a classic case of circular reference, right? You're working on an Excel file and the formula says it doesn't compute. Why? Because the input is dependent on the output. So garbage in, garbage out. Um, and if you have certain connections, as as you at a very young age, you know, discovered already in high school that um, corporate interests trump uh, consumer interests often. Yeah. So yeah. it, it was so like, I was just stunned. I was disappointed, but I was stunned too. Like here I am in high school doing what I thought was very basic research. And I had this firsthand, like, you know, and, and on a broader scale, all of these science fairs are sponsored by all of the big industries, whether it's pharmaceutical, big ag, you know, I mean, it's like, there are these roads, like, you know, pathways directly to corporations. Yeah. Um, and I don't think most people see that mode. They're just, you know, participating. It. So that was kind of, I started to see like, oh, there's, there's some issues in the science where like, I love real science, basic science, but that's not always prioritized or supported. And that's not what's going on. Yeah. So that, that was kind of a, you know, a, a chink in my plan. And then I go into college and I had some more frustrations with teachers where I saw, you know, things going on or saw like, again, corporate influences, even on my small, private, progressive liberal arts college. Um, and then I started to get I started a vegan and animal rights you know, group on campus and started to once again, like get really into that activism and that direct vegan education and just sort of found myself really called in that direction and very frustrated by the science world. And another piece of that is. I had thought that by doing like cell biology, which, you know, isn't directly like animal testing that I could avoid working with animals in science mm -hmm. and was shocked again to realize just how much even in like non-direct, non you know, animal testing, you've got antibodies that are produced by, you know, harming animals. You have fetal bovine serum. You have like a, a whole host, like I didn't even know how much animal exploitation it was possible and it is just like the entire scientific world in biology is steeped in exploiting animals and that again became very frustrating the stuff that i really enjoyed doing and really liked it was almost impossible to avoid using animal products um so yeah. I, I kind of steered more towards like vegan education at this point got out of college and worked for um like a, a social justice filmmaking, you know, vegan nonprofit. And that was really great, but also kind of not exactly what I wanted to do either. Um, and, and so I, I at times did feel like a little lost, like how do I do vegan education, do what I want to do too, because I didn't really want to just get a job for one of the vegan nonprofits. Nothing felt like a perfect fit. Like I had these ideas of this is what I want to say and do. This is how I want to say and do it. How yeah. do I make money <laughs> doing this, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. You know, allow me to, because, you know, yes. everything that you say packs so much punch, Serena, you know, you're, you're just awesome. Amazing. When it comes to the connecting so many wildly diverse dots. And, and I just, you know, um, want to reflect on a few things. Um, so our viewers can catch up. So you're at a science fair this person walks up to you, they're on the jury, so they're, they have, they hold power and, and science fairs, you're absolutely right. You know, debating and participating in science fairs, it takes a lot of time. Um, and, and you're starting to see already as a young person, how corporations moneyed, you know, interests start to interfere with science, which all of us are told and educated to sort of receive as one of the noble, you know, fields where you're in the pursuit of truth, you're trying to reveal, you know, things that are hidden from human senses, you know, using instruments and designs and, you know, human intelligence and so on. And, and now increasingly artificial intelligence. Um, and, and obviously that steered your career choices in a certain direction. And, and I was mentioning to you before um, 
the other day I was talking about veganism because, as you know, I'm very passionate about, you know, plant-based eating, intersectionality within that and research specifically and bringing, um, uh, you know, the, the, the ideas of how do you design research and how do you then reveal the truth, you know, to public at large. And, and there's this parent who got worried about, um, and they're not vegan yet, they're vegan curious. So they're still, you know, putting their arms around this way of eating. And they said, but if I, but if our children, they said, I'm paraphrasing, are indoctrinated in these idealistic <laughs> principles of compassion and, and, you know, compassion for animals and take it to an extreme where they were to grow older and refuse to be a part of the system, then how as a parent can I feel, how do I feel about their prospects? You know, and, and obviously they were concerned about, you know, um, exactly the sorts of things that you're talking about that, you know, making money outside of the system, which is front and center. And sometimes it feels it is the only system, you know, where, employer brands start courting and wooing young minds, even at science fairs, even those are not left, you know, uncontaminated mm -hmm. um, with this influence. What would you say to a parent like that who holds yeah. those? And, and I understand, you know, I, I, I understand where they're coming from. I don't agree, but I understand what their dilemma is as a, as a parent. How would you respond to something like that? Yeah, so a number of ways. One, I think that's exactly why we need to change the system. And that is that is my calling. And I don't think that's everyone's calling either. And I know plenty of people who were also raised vegan and haven't, you know, had they and there, there are plenty of paths that you can go and still, you know, be part of the system while being vegan. And I don't think being vegan is about being perfect either. Like we live in a non-vegan world. We all have to navigate this. This is just a path and, and how I've chosen to navigate it. But um, I know plenty of other people who were just like, okay, the science and biology, you know, that's not my thing. I'm going to go work for a tech company and I don't have any ethical issues with this. You know, there, there's, you know, if if you're critical of capitalism and the entire system, of course, it's going to be very hard to to, you know, which is more the direction I lean. Um, but there are ways to navigate that. And I think it's just about finding your place in it. And it's and and yeah, like even like for me, that meant not continuing to get a Ph.D. in biochemistry at yeah. that time. But I went on to become a science teacher and like there were that felt like a much better fit in many ways for me. Um, yeah. I have a particularly high standard and I have had a more difficult time figuring out what my role and, and place is. But that has not been how everyone, you know, and I know a number of people raised vegan and, and with these ethics and other people have navigated it very differently. So I don't think it's... Um, a guarantee that your kid is going to have these issues or not be able to make money. And I don't fault people for, you know, choosing to stay in the system and make money. But if you are so influenced or compelled by these ideas, then maybe your calling is activism and change and you're not meant to become super rich. <laughs> like, you know, different, different people have different paths. And I think, um, every child, every person is unique. Yeah. And, and as a parent, I would say your job is to share the information and then let your child as they grow up, figure out how they want to, you know, hold that information and what to do with it. Right. And, and not try to control it in a way mm -hmm. that you actually start controlling the perimeter um, where your child can actually go and venture even to make um, a life defining choice, right. you know, which is choosing what do they do for work? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so so tell me when, as a science teacher, now mm -hmm. you're on the other side, you're in the staff room, right? You're on the other side of it. Um, what type of a science teacher were you? What were some of the mm -hmm. staff room conflicts that you, know, you may have experienced if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, yeah, so after, you know, kind of trying to do activism and traveling for a while, I was like, you know, I really have always liked teaching, um, 
And so I applied to a, a private, it was a private Catholic school actually that I was teaching at, which was partially because I didn't have a teaching degree. My degree was in biochemistry and policy studies <clears throat> and public schools want more credentials. The private school I got a job with was like, just so happy that my background was actually in science because that's, you know, science teachers that actually, most people that get a degree in biochemistry go to work for a pharmaceutical company or, you know, like they're not the people that become teachers. So they were very happy to have me. And I ended up teaching, I was hired as a chemistry teacher. And then later I taught envir AP environmental science as well. Um, environmental so. science. I wish we had subjects like those being taught in the 80s when I was growing up in Venice school. This is so interesting. Did they allow you to shape the curriculum knowing? What to a certain extent. Yeah. So chemistry was very frustrating for me because I really liked it, but it didn't feel sort of on point to what really mattered because I was teaching chemistry to the students. I wasn't teaching advanced chemistry, just regular chemistry to the students where it was essentially required. They had to take a science class. Most of them were saying, I, you know, they were juniors in high school. I'm never going to take a science, you know, a chemistry class again. Like I'm going to go do something else. Science is not my field, which I liked the opportunity to reach those kids because I really wanted to share my love of science with them. But at the same time, some of what I taught and I kind of had to teach because there was, I had a lot of flexibility, but there was still, you know, standards and, and curriculum. And um, it was frustrating. It was like, I'm teaching them how to, you know, balance an equation or draw a chemical compound that they're never going to use again. They're never going to, you know, like they are going to do other things. And then they'd ask me questions like, oh, what's the deal with, you know, I saw the red light on the water fountain filter out there. Like, do those filters really make a difference? And what are they actually taking out, you know, out of the water? And I'd hear that and I'd be like, I want to talk about that. Like that is so much more relevant to their life, the water they're drinking, the quality, the filtering, and it's related to chemistry and science. So like, why can't I teach that? Like, why isn't that our curriculum? You know, like, and, and I, it, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to this, but one of the visions I had at that time was oh, developing a type of curriculum where you use, where you're still teaching chemistry concepts, but rather than just kind of going through the curriculum, you're, you ask kids what they care about and things like water, and you manage to take that and then connect that to the science and chemistry behind it. And so maybe you, you don't get to every chemistry topic you're supposed to, but you're like following their interests and actually tying these topics to real world issues that impact that. I, I think that would be such a better chemistry and science curriculum. I'm very critical of the schooling system, even though I, you know, taught in it. And, um, but so I loved, you know, AP environmental science more because it, it was a much better fit for what I wanted to teach. We were able to cover everything from agriculture to water quality, to climate change. And, um, so I actually really enjoyed teaching that a lot more and there were a lot more areas that I could bring things in, but at the same time, that class is teaching to a test. So I couldn't do too much of that other stuff because that mattered even more than chemistry because you have scores that matter, you know, and, and statistics of, you know, are they getting college credit? And yeah. Um, yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of pull and push, you know, within the system. There is also there is a drive towards structure and standardization and needing to follow certain curriculum. Um, and, and I guess it's also driven by the peer group, you know, of schools, et cetera. And, and every school wants to shine in, in their own way uh, and for their students to score high. Um, but at the same time, it's also about making science practical, making math practical. Like, why mm -hmm. am I learning geometry if I don't know how to apply it in my real life? You know, um, why am I learning chemistry? Like, why do I need to understand Mendeleev's? whatever periodic table, you know, um, and I still remember it, by the way, because in mnemonics and stuff, you know, uh -huh. helium, neon, argon, whatever. But then it's, it's like, what, what's, it's, what's it's worth for me to remember that lithium, you know, is, I don't know, comes before boron mm -hmm. and, and so on and carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, whatever I'm trying to show off now, but so what, what I'm trying to say is 
um, if we don't gamify it, if we don't, you know, put it in a format such as a case study format um, and tie it up with the interests of the students um, and, and water is something really important. I mean, we know what's going on with water issues. You know, there's flash flooding in you know, different parts of the world at this point in time. Pakistan, one third of that country is underwater. One out of seven people, uh, you know, in, in that country are in a deep state of distress because of water. How can we find a way to embed these real life situations and solutions into our curriculum? Mm -hmm. So uh, hats off to you, you know, as a teacher, first of all, as a student for doing all the activism that you did. And then as a teacher to talk about these different um, things. And, and thankfully you did have, it sounds like some flexibility to shape it. Mm -hmm. um, I have so many questions for you, uh, Serena. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to quickly jump over to one of the questions, uh, which I know that you and I deliberated upon, and you know, we really wanted to bring it to uh, this this conversation. Was you know, sometimes, and and I'm uh, you know using a word that Victoria Moran, who we have mutual admiration for um, at the Main Street Academy, she uses a word, Vistopia. It's spelled mm -hmm. V-Y-S-T-O-P-I-A. And, and she said it's vegan dystopia. It's, it's a you know composite word. Uh, I don't know if she created somebody else. And, and, and I find it, you know, sometimes feeling really cynical about oh, nothing's going to change. You know, things aren't changing. How many people do we need for, you know, them to start making either small changes or big changes or whatever? You know, I would love to hear your well thought out, scientifically considered point of view on how can we make a vegan world possible? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I feel like I just want to backtrack and add something in here that after, so I, I quit teaching. I don't still teach um, high school, but I basically became a full-time vegan educator because I love teaching and the curriculum was was still, you know, for me, the system was too much a box. So I have gone to be a, to become a, a full time vegan educator. I'm traveling around the country right now. Um, I just I'm going to be announcing this, you know, uh, shortly. But I have a van that has, you know, vegan information on the outside of it, and I'm traveling around the country. And my my goal would be to get into high schools and speak directly about veganism. That I think that should be part of the curriculum. That should be, you know. And I'm looking for ways to create curriculum and materials that we can give to schools. Like I, I, you know, so that's kind of what I'm doing now. And in that part of how I've chosen where to focus my energy or what to do. And, you know, is I've looked at all the different types of activism I've tried. I've tried almost every type of activism out there. You know, I've had a lifetime to, to explore. And at times I've liked different things, but I've always felt called to talk specifically about veganism and, and speciesism and our, our views and discrimination of non-human animals mm. because there is research that suggests that, you know, social change creates a tipping point, you know, that the social change happens, you know, sometimes at a tipping point and that we can't see how close we are to radical social changes or transformations until we like reach this tipping point where things are progressing one way and then all of a sudden there's a big change. And, you know, there, there's, we don't know this for sure. It's kind of hard to study and, and predict how society changes, but some research suggests that that tipping point, you know, really takes about, you know, 20 to 25% of the population to strongly hold an idea for it to create this ripple effect that then transforms the rest of society. And I find that really powerful and compelling, and it fits with my personal experience. In you know the vegan and animal rights community, there's a lot of debate about like should we promote, um, should we be focusing on teaching people or telling people to eat less meat or make small changes? And one of the arguments for this, right, is that if eighty percent, if ninety percent of the world, you know, ate less meat but nobody went vegan, think how many fewer animals would be killed. That, and that's a very compelling idea. But from my personal experience and thinking about this research, I take a different approach, which is, while, yeah, that would be great and maybe fewer animals would be killed, my goal isn't fewer animals being killed. My goal is I want a paradigm shift. 
I want people to stop looking at animals as objects and property for us to eat or kill or do what we want with. I, I want to change our view of non-human animals. And, and to achieve that, to have a vegan world, which is what my goal is, I feel like it makes a lot more sense to focus on this paradigm shift idea and trying to reach, you know, 20 to 25% of the population with a vegan ethical principle. And so, and maybe that doesn't mean that they're actually eating 100% vegan, but to me, that means getting 20 to 25% of the population to recognize that animals have inherent worth and that they're not objects for us to basically support a vegan ethic. And you know, it's not it's not necessarily possible to live 100% perfectly vegan in today's world. So that's not really sort of the goal. The goal is getting people to transform their view, to change yeah. their paradigm. And I truly believe based on the research I've seen that we could change way fewer hearts and minds and be way, way closer to a truly vegan world by focusing on this, this tipping point of 25% rather than let's just dumb our message down. Let's just tell people to eat less meat. And, and you know, and then the argument that people have made is like, well, only 10% of the population going vegan, that's not going to, you know, look at all the animals that are still going to be killed. But I, I disagree because we're, we're working towards that tipping point. Yeah. And I think, you know, who knows what's possible? Maybe we reach 25% and like this ripple effect happens where things just start changing really rapidly because now you have this dedicated group of individuals with a strong ethical paradigm. Yeah. And that's what changes laws. That's what changes subsidies. That's what changes supply and demand. Like it just shifts everything. Right. So that's really, that's what gives me hope. And that's what I focus on and what guides, you know, how I choose to be a vegan educator. Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, it, it's, uh, well, thank you so much for offering that uh, scientifically scientifically sound solution or an alternative to all the voices out there that rightfully, as you mentioned, want to dumb down the message or dilute it or make it seem more conciliatory and not as extreme as, oh no, now do I have to eliminate all the animals on my plate? And I'm like, yeah, yes. Like, why would you want to have a dead carcass in the corner of your mm -hmm. menu? You know, if the rest of your menu is all of a sudden so good and clean and compassionate. Um, and it reminds me of that, um, of what very quickly the restaurant and the catering um, and uh, the hotel, the hospitality business is uh, discovering, even airlines, you know, United Airlines is now offering uh, vegan meatballs uh, on over 800 domestic connections within the United States. And I was super happy that they did that. And, and what they're discovering is that the vegans in the party decide where people go to eat. Mm right so if you have even one in a party of four who's vegan and you know they're ch thinking about coming to your restaurant but you don't have a single vegan adaptable meal or you know uh, uh, anything on your menu you're you're losing the business for mm -hmm. the other uh, three in the party three or four in the party too so so i'm just going to bring this um graphic up once again for our viewers um serena in under 30 seconds please explain this graphic. Yeah, so this is basically, you know, showing that that social changes are driven by a minority. It doesn't have to be a majority like we used to think. And and this shows basically that yeah, if one in four people seriously, you know, adopt an ethic of, you know, anti-speciesism, of veganism, of animal rights, that that is more likely to actually change the whole paradigm in society than even the other 75%, you know, reducing their meat consumption or inching their way, but holding on to the idea that it's okay to kill and use animals. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, gonna shift things a little bit. You know, it's, it's, we've spoken about how many we will need, you know, for change to happen. We've just, you know, shared about your journey um, as, uh, you know, as a student and then, then on the other side as, as a teacher and some of the challenges you've experienced. Um, you're from the Midwestern part of the United States. You know, a lot of, um, you know, um, I have family in the Midwest and I, I just love the Midwest for, you know, how salt of the earth sort of people, you know, there are simple, uh, you know, 
really family oriented, uh, strong value system, um, and and so on. But it also is where you know the agricultural heart, so to speak, or shall I say, animal agricultural monocropping, intensive monocropping, and you know um, heart of this country is based in. Um, growing up with veganism as your ethic, how how was it challenging if it was you know, in, in the Midwest? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very different here. And that was something that I didn't fully appreciate until traveling and spending more time on the coast and in different areas and hearing stories uh, or activism and things that people were doing in other places and thinking like, wow, it's that different? Like people are... <laughs> able to they're more open like they're they're really you don't realize it until you're here but just how blocked the midwest is and, and so an example i i'm from a smaller college town outside of the kansas city area so it's it has like a hundred thousand people it's not you know a really small town it's a pretty progressive one of the most liberal progressive um spots in kansas it's where the university of kansas is it's where I, you know, more or less grew up and went to high school. And there are, we have like a community co-op, kind of like a local version of Whole Foods or something, you know, here. And, um, you know, my mother used to teach vegan plant-based nutrition classes. Mm -hmm. And she kind of got fired from her job there for suggesting. And these are people who profess to be against factory farming even, right? Like they're very pro small, local, you know, humane animal agriculture. And, you know, we tried to do activism in the city and we've had so much pushback. Like it is just incredible mm -hmm. how even suggesting, um, um, even suggesting that, you know, people not support, you know, like they'll say like, I'm against factory farming. And then we tried to get the local co-op to not buy factory farm meat. And yeah. that was like too radical, even though they claim to be against factory farming and support local farming. Um, if you write a blog post, if you talk about what happens on any of these farms, you are an immediate outcast from the otherwise hippie, progressive, social justice oriented community. It is it is one of the most anti-vegan environments that I have been in. Yeah. And I, I was even shocked when going to Kansas City and trying to do you know activism there, how much more receptive people in the city were. Yeah, compared to this. So it's it's been definitely a big struggle trying to change anything or do anything. Um, yeah. People are just very, you know, everyone knows someone who has a farm or comes from a farm and, and they're very attached to that. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and when it's the family's livelihood in question or if that's the only thing that they've ever known, you know, how to be able to, you know, um, raise their kids and have uh, some standing in the society becomes really difficult because they identify with that. Um, but you're bringing change in, uh, in, in these areas, you know, and especially in the Midwest. Um, tell us about a project that you're working on that, you know, um, in just a few months from now, because um, it's uh, December, you know, when we're, uh, airing your interview and and then uh you have something in, in store you've been working very hard on that so to, to tell our viewers about it yeah so i am co-organizing a worldwide vegan climate march and this is kind of it was you know i've had the idea for a while but i was really inspired by the youth climate strikes that happened back in 2019 the momentum around you know making climate action really urgent but I was always disappointed that I felt like most people in the climate community have these kind of vague calls for like, the government should take action. We need, you know, and to me, the science is really clear on what that action needs to be. We yeah. need to end animal agriculture. Like now we need to stop eating animals and stop supporting and propping up this industry. And we're not going to have real climate action or make a difference if we keep ignoring this issue. So the, the, the Vegan Climate March was basically an idea to bring this issue front and center, still you know, calling for urgent action and marching on climate change. The goal is to have you know, 100 plus cities around the world all having you know, sister marches on the same day okay. calling for climate action. 
but we have very clear demands, which are we need a plant-based food system now. We need people who can to personally go vegan and, and support an alternative system and boycott the meat and dairy industry. And we need to support things like the plant-based treaty, which are working on a more systemic level to um, get cities and governments to endorse and support a transition to a plant-based food system. Um, and, and we're not shying away from using the term vegan because the other piece of this is that we can't just have climate action. Like part of the reason that climate action matters is because of the individuals that it impacts. Yeah. You know, and a lot more people are talking about intersectional justice and how climate, uh, you know, how climate change affects, you know, communities of color and all these different, you know, people and how we need to talk about that. And then everyone's forgetting the animals. Yeah. And they're not being included. So it's like, I also at the same time don't really care if it's more sustainable to eat grass-fed beef because that's also an individual who I believe deserves the right to life. So we're trying to holistically bring all those together in saying that if you care about climate change, we need a veganic food system now. And this is the most ethical food system for people and animals and the planet. So yeah. that's yeah. what we're calling for. Yeah, and which is the first city where you're go the nodal march is, is going to happen. St. Louis, St. Louis, wow. Missouri. Awesome. So you're actually striking at the heart of, you know, the very geographies where a lot of resistance is. Yes. How do you think St. Louis is going to um, receive it? We'll see. Um, but we, you know, we kind of chose that one of our organizers is located there and so many big vegan events happen on the coasts, And yeah. we really felt like, we need something that that centers the Midwest, the middle of the country and the, the farming world and where so much of this is happening so that we can bring attention to that and, and be hosting a large event like this in this area to to even to show that there's concern about this here in these communities, in this, you know, near these industries. So, right. yeah. Serena, what I find really interesting is how you're juxtaposing veganism and climate change and bringing those two together in this, you know, really impressive event that you're curating along with your other two co-founders, um, because it's in the Midwest, you know, that's where the tornado alley soon to be rechristened as derecho alley, you know, hopefully not, but that's the way it seems to be going, right? Um, we're having to change all our meteorological barometers um, and, and you know, wet bulb temperature readings and so on to just understand this new, very highly frequent and intense um, climate phenomenon. You know, Massachusetts, where I am at at this point, you know, we're the land of nor'easters and lots and lots of rain. It's called New England for a reason, gray skies all the time. And and we've had India type of summer, mm. you know, this past summer and uh, we're in um, a state of drought. So uh, the Midwest specifically has experienced so much climate change, you know. Um, but unfortunately, when we look at this, the state of, you know, climate change perception in the United States, the other day I was reading an article where it said a lot of climate denial and climate change doubt still happens to be in the Midwest. And, and as, as a Midwesterner, how would you respond to that? You know, how, how do you, mm -hmm. how does that compute for you in terms of um, you're witnessing it, you know, your farm and the animals, especially on it. I mean, you were rescued. So when we say evacuate Tahoe city, because there is a major, you know, uh, wildfire going on in, in Northern California, we never really think about, we think about in terms of human population terms, we don't think about what happened to the wildlife. Mm -hmm. What happens to farmed animals? And at best, we think about pet animals. And we have these tearjerker videos, you know, shown on Twitter and everywhere else where a lost puppy and, you know, and I have all the compassion for the lost puppy, but I also feel compassionate for the calves that were lost and burnt up, you know? So how, how do you respond to something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really wild how I think one of the, the most recent videos was um, a whole bunch of cows in Kansas, where I'm from, that uh, died due to like heat and dehydration, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was a, kind of when it you know, went viral. And um, I think farmers are like, they're starting to see this. Like if you are on the ground raising animals, you're going to realize like something's going on and maybe they'll try and find other explanations or not call it climate change. 
but I think it's it's going to be hard to ignore the reality that things are changing. Yeah. And I think that will sort of force a lot of people to to wake up and to care a bit more about this. Yeah, yeah. We're running out of time, Serena. It's been it's been amazing, eye-opening and and very insightful to talk to you. Um any last thoughts? Where can people find you? How can people support your work? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, if anybody is looking for vegan presentations in schools, particularly on the East Coast, which is where I'm traveling right now, and, uh, and in the coming months, I'll be all over. So just, you know, like, feel free to reach out if you want a presentation in your school or to talk about that. And, um, or if you want to host a, a vegan climate march in your city, you can go to veganclimatemarch.org and fill out the organizer form and find me on my website, Born Vegan. That's where you, there's links to my YouTube channel, my Science is Gray podcast, and my Instagram is Born Vegan One. So just search Born Vegan. I have stuff everywhere. And please feel free to reach out um, if you have any questions. If you sign up uh, for my email list on my website, I have a free vegan living guide with like my 10 top tips to help people um, make the transition as well. Yes. And also the flashcards that your mom. And the flashcards. Yes. You can get those as well. All right. Um, thank you so much, Serena. It's been a pleasure having you on Divinity Connecting the Dots. Thank you so much, Nivi. I really appreciated this. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.